I grew up hearing lots of stories about my family. When they emigrated from England, what they did when they got here, and really stories about my origins and who I was. And you probably had the same thing. I remember hearing stories about uh, my grandfather and why he and all of his brothers didn't have 10 full fingers. Uh, my grandfather had these three fingers were mostly gone and he actually had more fingers than the rest of his brothers did and I heard the stories because when they came over they were coal miners and at one point or another they had all tripped and the coal cart had run over their fingers and they didn't have ten fingers. I remember those stories. I remember seeing my grandfather's fingers. I remember what it must have been like to be a coal miner. I remember stories about my grandparents talking about when they were young and harsh Wyoming winters and how they would have to take newspapers and stuff it into the holes of the walls of their tar paper shacks. And I can remember thinking, wow, this is what I came from. I'm only a couple generations removed from living in a tar paper shack and being a coal miner in Wyoming. I can remember my great-grandmother who lived to a great old age. When I started dating, she said to me, make sure and tell your girlfriend's parents that your family comes from Wyoming. Because if they know you come from Wyoming, they'll know that you're good people. And I can remember when I was probably eight years old, my grandfather, who died when I was nine, said to me, when you grow up, there's gonna be a lot of choices that you need to make. And if you ever wonder what you should do, just ask yourself, what would grandpa say? What would grandma say about what you're going to do? I mean, these are the people that I came from. This was what was given to me. This is who I am. And you probably have many similar stories about your family of origin. And it's those, those origin stories that tell us so much about who we are, that help us see what life could be like. We get told stories all of our lives, and lots of us are being told really unhealthy stories um, that just aren't true or are not fully true. And so in this new sermon series, we're going to look at stories of origin. We're gonna look at some of the most famous stories in the Old Testament that tell us who we are, that tell us who God is, that help orient us in the world, that give us the foundation so that we can discover who God has created us to be. And so today we're going to look at um, the story of the fall, the Genesis chapter 3. In the first two chapters of Genesis are the story of, of creation, and then the third chapter of Genesis we get to the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, 
and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So just a couple of words about Genesis because we're not there very often. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are pretty much prehistory. And what I mean by that is if you start in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, that can be dated. We know when that happened. The first 11 chapters, kind of lost in the mist of time. It's really hard to know when these things happened. And there's a lot of school of thoughts about um, is the, uh, are the writers describing things as they actually were, or are they trying to explain how things are? Uh, is it uh, a, to be taken literally, or is it mostly to tell us about God and his interactions? And I'll let you pick from any of those. Uh, but the first 11 chapters are just kind of a unique literary genre that we need to read just a little bit differently. Now, the creation and the fall stories um, is so foundational to our understanding of who we are and the way things are that it's worth spending a few moments on because the creation stories remind us of how things got here. Whatever you believe about how it literally happened, the ultimate point that's being made is that everything that was created comes from God. It's not accidental. It wasn't just, you know, something, the random collision of atoms that happened over hundreds of billions of years. No, God put it together. And it also tells us that everything was good. And that's important to remember because sometimes we get like this weird little Gnosticism thing which comes in, which says that all the spiritual stuff is good, but physical stuff, that's bad. And that's just not classic Christianity. Uh, we believe that the world and creation is good. And then the stories also remind us of where we're headed. You see, if you read carefully, just the bookends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, we begin in a garden and we end in a garden. We begin with God living with us. We end with God living with us. We begin with everything being good. We end with everything being good. Paradise lost and paradise restored. So everything is created good, and we know how it's going to end, but now this is the part of the story that describes how things kind of went south. So here we are in the garden. The first thing that I want you to note is the serpent. It's actually much, much later that the serpent becomes associated with Satan. In this story, all it says is that the serpent is a crafty animal. 
And you could see why, that, why the serpent would end up being evil, because most people don't like snakes. Snakes are weird, people think they're slimy, even if they aren't, you know, people don't like snakes, and so it's easy to associate them with evil. And at this point, all the snake does, is, all the snake is described as, is just being crafty. So let's just stick with that for a while. Let's stick with how the story is written, where the snake is not associated with Satan yet, because there might be an important point here. So temptation enters into the story. Did God really say? And Eve responds, well, we can eat from the trees of the garden, except for one. We can't eat from that one. In fact, we can't even touch it. But Eve, that's not what God said. God didn't say you can't touch the tree. God just said you can't eat from the tree. So what does it tell us that this is what Eve says? I think it tells us that she's been rolling this thing around in her mind. I think she's wondering about that tree. I think it's human nature to be intrigued by the thing we were told not to do. So I also think it tells us that temptation lies within us. We don't really need a whole lot of help from other people. And, and by the way, let's not read too much into the fact that this conversation was, is with Eve and not with Adam. The, the story doesn't make Eve look more weak. The story doesn't make Eve look more susceptible. The story doesn't set up women as being the weaker sex that are uh, more easily deceived. That, that's not in the story. After all, it looks like Adam just unthinkingly eats what his wife gives to him. So who looks worse here? So she's rolling this thing around in her mind. And then this temptation sort of formulates from the serpent did God really say? Now, I think temptation is fairly universal. But the question here is, what are you going to do with it? Temptation, you, you can't help that. But you can help what you do with it. And Eve sort of begins to entertain the temptation. And everyone who's hearing my voice knows exactly what it's like to hear a little bit of temptation and then begin to go down that path. You don't have to, but we have a tendency to do that. So remember I said that the uh, snake isn't initially associated with Satan and that, that that might be important. I think it's important because I'm not sure we should blame the serpent. I think we need to take responsibility for our own actions. And I think Eve and Adam can't just blame the snake. I think they have to take responsibility for what they did. I've been reading a really good book um, by Andy Stanley, not in it to win it, which you should read. And in it, he talks about this thing called fundamental attribution error. And basically what that says is that we attribute other people's actions to their character. And our actions are because of circumstance. Uh, bad stuff. So uh, take, for instance, if you're supposed to have a meeting with somebody else and the other person shows up late, you automatically assume that they have a character flaw. They didn't plan well. They could have come earlier. They need to work on their own personal development. 
if you show up late to the meeting, it's entirely circumstantial. Well, I got behind a school bus, or it was because there was too much traffic, or this, that, and the other thing. So we want everybody else to take responsibility for their actions, and we're very, very good at excusing our own. And I think this story reminds us that we're culpable that the things that we do are not because we're victims of circumstances, by and large, but we are responsible for those things. Eve is not a victim of circumstance, neither is Adam. It's not the snake's fault. They both made a conscious choice, and they have responsibility. And we make conscious choices, and we have responsibility, which makes things a little uncomfortable. So Eve entertains this temptation Hmm, what did God really say? And she begins to believe a lie, which is so often how we walk down the wrong path. I mean, if the lie just came blatantly, most of us would go, that's not true. But it comes as being just a little bit confusing. Is that really what God said? And then we start to think about that. Okay, so now let's play with the Satan development. Let's play with the fact that eventually the serpent becomes um, associated with Satan. Does Satan know what Eve is thinking? I mean, we know that God's privy to our thoughts, but is Satan privy to our thoughts? And I don't think so. And I think it's an important point to make because we still tend to think that God and Satan are equal, that they have the same powers, they can do the same sorts of things, and they aren't. We believe that God is omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Does he have access to your innermost thoughts? I don't think so. So I, I don't think that's the issue. I think what Satan does know is what we all desire. And it's because it's what he desired. We all want power. We all want control. We all want to take our rightful place in being important and controlling things in our own lives. He knows that Eve can be tempted because that's what he was tempted by. We want to be our own gods. So verse 4, you will not certainly die. And I love the way that that's framed because I think maybe their assumption was they would die right away. It doesn't say you're not going to die because he knows that's not true. But he says you will not certainly die and it becomes ambiguous. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, okay, let's be honest here. When you read this, why would we not want to be like God? Why would we not want to know the difference between good and evil? In fact, this might even make God look a little petty. And I think that's what Satan, the serpent, is, in, is attempting to do. It's like God saying, I don't want to share the best stuff with you. But that's not exactly what the situation is. Because what they're kicking around here is not wisdom. What they're kicking around here is not getting better at discerning what's good and bad. Because in this context, good and evil means something different than they do to us. It doesn't mean that you would become really discerning. Good for them means the thing that would have a good effect. Bad for them is the thing that would have a bad effect. 
It's more like the ability to tell what's going to be beneficial and what might be detrimental to you based on your own decisions. It's not that, it, that they would gain more knowledge, it's that they would gain independence to decide for themselves what they think is good and bad for them, which still doesn't sound all that bad, except most of us are really bad at knowing what's gonna turn out good for us and what's going to turn out bad for us. And maybe the, the ability to just choose for yourself or have that freedom, maybe that just sounds like good old fashioned American freedom, you know? But what it really is, is throwing off God and deciding to put ourselves in his place. So remember the context. They're in a garden and everything is perfect. God provided what was good. God had given them complete security, but they decided they wanted to improve on that. They decided they could do it better. You will not certainly die. This raises one of the great issues of the text and actually one of the great issues of our lives. Can God be trusted? Did God really say that? The reason he did is because he wants to keep the power for himself. He doesn't want to share it with you. God is not good. Oh, now we're someplace down the road that we didn't know that we were going. Can God be trusted? Is God really good? Does God want good for you? So what are some of the ways that we need to trust God? What are some of the things that God says? If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. Be a cheerful giver. You mean share? Pray for those who persecute you. I will never leave you. Keep your promises. There are limits on your sexual expression. Hmm. I don't necessarily want to accept all of those things. I don't necessarily want to do those things. Can I really trust God for that? Or is God not actually good? Hmm. Because most of the time, my filter is, will it be fun? Will it feel good? Am I going to enjoy doing it while I'm doing it. I mean, that's usually as deep as most of us go when we're going to decide what to do. And my goodness, if I had a dollar for every time someone was going to do something destructive and told me it was because it would make them happy or more fulfilled, I'd have my kid's college paid off. It's a dangerous place to be when we look for ourselves to be the ultimate arbitrator of what is good and what's evil. And this is the issue of the text. We think we know better. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to make up our own minds. Oftentimes with very limited information beyond because we want to. And then we stride boldly off on this new path only to discover most of the time it doesn't lead where we think it's going to. So a couple of weeks ago, some of the guys in our neighborhood got together and we had rebuilt our mailboxes. Uh, there, we have a, a wooden stand, it's got a nice little roof on it, and we had all had smaller mailboxes and we decided to get bigger locking mailboxes because people had been stealing mail in our neighborhood. Uh, 
And as a consequence, we had to expand the thing, and some people went and uh, expanded it. And the, the way that the mailboxes were ordered were somewhat random. They didn't go in any particularly logical order. So as people were deciding where to put them, somebody had the idea that we should just put them in numerical order because that would make it easier for the post office. And I wasn't there that day. Uh, and as they were doing it, um, the, the, the mail person came by and these guys said, hey, what do you think about if we just put them in order? And the mail carrier goes, great, I think that's a terrific idea. So we, the next week, we're there putting them in order, and I'm like, we're rearranging them? They're like, yeah, we're just gonna, gonna put them in order. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a really good idea. Maybe we should check with the post office before we do that. And like, no, no, it's, it's totally fine. So we rearrange it, and I'm still going, I don't think this is a good idea. Upshot is, Monday, no mail. Tuesday, no mail. Wednesday, letter from the postmaster. We will not be delivering mail to you until you return the boxes into the order that they were supposed to be. So we went out the next weekend, and we changed them all back. Now, that's a pretty innocuous example about how we go off and do our own things based on what we think is right. But there's a lot more really tragic examples of how we ruined a marriage, how we betrayed a friend, how we ended up in an entanglement with the law, how we can't sleep at night because we made a choice there's a lot of really tragic stories that many people live because they decided this seemed like a good idea to them. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Do you see how that built? It was just like the lie sort of went one step at a time. This builds. She saw the fruit of the tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. She knew that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. She saw it in a new light, a dangerous light. If I eat that, it will feed my desires. It looks good. It'll make me happy. Why would God put it there if he didn't really want me to have it? How can something so good be so bad for you? I'll gain something from it. Oh, yes. But what will you gain? What did you gain by the affair? What did you gain by tax evasion or fraud? What did you gain by lying? What did you gain by taking the easy way? Their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Their eyes are open. They definitely got some new information, but they did not become like gods. Their eyes were open. They got autonomy. They got the right to make their own choices. They also discovered consequences. They ruined everything. There were consequences far beyond what they had imagined. It's like no one who has ever had one too many drinks and gets behind the wheel of their car ever expects that they're going to run a red light and T-bone another car and kill somebody. And yet, 
that's a very real consequence that probably happens every Friday night somewhere in the Puget Sound region. There are harsh but very real consequences. They thought they would gain all this freedom. And what they gained was the knowledge that they were naked. And it made them ashamed. Nakedness is an interesting thing. Let's think about it more psychological than physical, although physical is, is part of it too. But to be naked psychologically is to be safe. They were safe. They weren't vulnerable to anything bad. When their eyes were opened what they, and they realized that they were naked, what they realized was that they weren't safe anymore. They were vulnerable. They weren't safe to, uh, with God. They weren't safe with each other. I think we've all discovered that sometimes the people closest to us can inflict the most painful wounds. And Adam and Eve look at each other and they go, you're not safe for me anymore. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Adam, where are you? That might be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Not because God couldn't find Adam, but because all of a sudden, God wasn't safe anymore. And now they're hiding from the one who promised them only good. Who told you you were naked? You've always been naked, but it was nothing to be ashamed of. It was nothing to fear. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? God asked these questions that lead down the path of exactly what Adam and Eve have destroyed. Why are you hiding? Because our relationship has been changed. Who told you you're naked? Because now your relationship with each other has changed. Did you eat? You've decided to reject me. God asked these questions. God knew the answers. God knew what had happened. God knows that they had chosen to go their own way. God knew what the consequences would be. And here's the amazing thing. God came anyway. God still came searching for them. And this is absolutely critical for us to understand who we are. Absolutely critical for us to understand who God is. The way the story should have gone is that Adam and Eve got the reminder from their Apple watches that it was time for God to go on their evening walk with them, and they hid. And God never showed up. Because God said, nuts to them. God said, you've made your bed, now sleep in it. And Adam and Eve, after a couple of hours of hiding, realized that God wasn't coming. And they felt abandoned. That's the way the story should go. But that's not what happened. God came anyway. God came seeking them when they were hiding. God came seeking us when we're hiding. God came seeking them when they were ashamed. God comes seeking us when we're ashamed.
And that's God's pattern. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you lay awake thinking about at night. I don't know the stories that play in your head. I don't know the things that you're ashamed of having done or having been done to you. I don't know the things that you would go back and correct if only you could. I don't know what shame or guilt you live with, but God does. And he comes anyway. He still comes to encounter you. See, Adam and Eve are not unique. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. But God seeks us out. God still comes. And that's what's so amazing about the Jesus story, is that God enters into our world while we're ashamed, while we're guilty, while we're hiding, while we don't deserve it, and makes a way. So what does this origin story tell us? about who we are and who God is. We're reminded that things are broken and we're complicit. We're reminded that it's not just their fault, we're not victims of circumstances, it's our fault. We've all hurt people, we've all made bad choices. We have decided that we're the best judges of what's good for us and we've ignored God. We've all sinned, but it reminds us that we follow a God who comes to us when we don't deserve it. We follow a God who can be trusted. We're loved, we're sought after, and our life can be different at any time that we choose. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Deep down in your heart, what do you believe about who you are? Number two, how does the image of God coming to you in love affect you? And number three, in what area do you need to experience the forgiveness of God?